0: It's just me this time. I'm Mooj Sadie, and today's guest is Bianca Gaver. We've been friends for a really long time, and I've been wanting to get her on the show for years now. And every time I ask her, she's like, no, 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 wait till my next project is going to be great and ambitious and beautiful. And she kept punting and punting and punting. But finally, she said yes, and here we are. Bianca and I talk about her decision to turn down a This American Life Fellowship. We also talk about a radio documentary that she spent two years of her life digging into about a poet named Franz Wright. The piece is called Two Years with Franz, and it's just like a beautiful portrait of a wonderful, tormented poet. And we touch on what it's like to work at The Daily. And Bianca has a new podcast called Constellation Prize, so we delve into that as well. Please go check it out wherever you get your podcasts. You can find Constellation consolation prize. Okay, here's me talking to Bianca Gaver. But, but 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 before we start, one note about our Patreon, which is a way for you, the listener, to support us financially if you can. Right now we're up to four subscribers, <laughs> which is great and wonderful. Um, but hopefully we could inch that number a little bit higher. Otherwise, tape might go away again. So if you can, if if you've been listening to tape for years, if you've consumed every single episode, listened to some even twice, please, please, please think about donating and supporting us. We're at patreon.com slash tape radio. Thanks. And for real this time, here's me talking to Bianca.
1: Do you have a whole script? Yeah. Wow. I just want you to know, there might be one question in here, Like, we don't have to answer it. It's coming from a place of love. Oh, God. No, you're good. I think there's one other thing, but I don't remember. Okay, let's just start. Hi, Bianca. Hi. Welcome to tape. Thank you. This is silly, but I do want to start with your name. I really like your name, your entire first name and last name, Bianca Gaver. I don't know. I just like how it's spelled out and what it looks like on paper. And you got the B-I-A, G-I-A. Yeah. What does it mean?
2: My mom says I was named after Bianca Jagger. Who's that? Mick Jagger's wife. (laughs) Um, And. Do you look like her? No, my mom thought I was going to look like her. She's Nicaraguan. Um, but my mom has like really dark black hair and she thought I would have jet black hair. And, and so that, I don't know, that matched in her mind. And my dad just liked the name. He's like, I did not name you after a rock star's wife. <laughs> my mom's like, but she's so glamorous. Like it's a great person to be named after. But yeah, I hate my last name in terms of like, it's hard to say and spell. It's kind of a nuisance. And so I'm glad you like it.
1: So you said you got sucked into journalism by reading profiles when you were young. Like, what profiles would you read?
2: I was obsessed with the Tom Juno profile of Mr. Rogers. A high school teacher gave that to me. And yeah, it has a lot of voice in it. And you're like, wow, you can really, or I felt like I could really feel the writer behind the writing through this profile. I remember reading Frank Sinatra Has a Cold. And I remember reading Susan Orleans' profile of a 10-year-old boy. And then getting really into Susan Orleans writing. So yeah, I've always loved profiles. I've always loved character.
1: So you're reading profiles. It really gets you sucked into journalism. And the first piece you've ever made was a profile of a 16-year-old boy who went to high school with you who had brain cancer. Mm-hmm. So he was in the Seattle Weekly and it was like their most read piece of the year.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, it was up there. Um, I think I had some early success, which I think makes it difficult. It's always hard to move on from an, from a early success for sure. But yeah, that definitely wedded me to journalism. That piece sort of like was the most like praise I'd ever gotten in my life. Um, and I got paid to do something meaningful. And so, yeah, I was, I was hooked after that. Yeah.
1: And just describe that story a little bit.
2: It was a classmate of mine who had this diagnosis, Nick Sears is his name, and he knew he didn't have long to live. And his response to that was to try to be as adult as possible. So he was kind of psychologically trying to grow up when he wasn't going to be able to grow up physically. And so he still had all these dreams for his life that he wanted to achieve before he died. And uh, and he was trying to achieve them. It was really moving.
1: And then at one point you put your, you insert yourself into the story.
2: I think he like had developed some romantic feelings for me and I was getting that vibe and I felt like insincere, not including that, I guess. And I was just interested in including myself in my work. And I think I had read some pieces where I was drawn to pieces where the writer does that. Um, And it felt like a... Like a good ending, I think. I mean, <laughs> I haven't read this since I wrote it. Um, but I wanted to acknowledge the complexity of writing about a classmate and just ha- the messiness of that whole process of the journalistic process and of what he was going through—the messiness of of dying too young—and and it was it was very sad for him.
1: Okay, so you make that piece, you get into Motelberry, and I know you've talked a lot about the scared is scared. But one thing I want to focus on is that you you made this piece, you're in Middlebury, it got published on your last day of school, it goes viral, You say Today is like, this is the best video of the year, and I'm more interested, less interested in talking about that piece since you've discussed it so much, and more interested about, like, the aftermath. And in particular, I know that you got an internship at This American Life, but you're debating between taking that internship or working for Adobe. And you decided to work for Adobe. And I'm kind of curious about that decision. I guess for me, I know you're a big fan of This American Life. It's like the reason you got into radio. So when you made that decision, I was very surprised that you didn't want to like work for your dream show.
2: Ira and I talked about it on the phone and she was really nice. I said at the end of the call, I was like, what would you actually do if you were me? And then and he said I would come work at This American Life. But then he texted me the next morning. He said, I slept on it, and I think you should do the other thing. Uh, Reason being, like, he's like, you can always come, like, you know, work with the show down the line, and it sounds like you have a voice and something you're trying to do, and you're interested in film, and this is, like, an opportunity to go, like, do film more and and work on that and think about that. And the money was better. Um, And... I wanted to create a nest egg for being a freelancer and an artist and I was starting with zero dollars and I knew my parents weren't going to like support me at all. And so just the idea of like being able to like for a year just like save up allowed me a lot of freedom since then.
1: So it doesn't sound like you regret that decision at all.
2: I did regret it for a little while actually, but now so much time has passed that I don't and I am grateful for the money. I don't know what's going to happen down the line if I'm going to need that money or not, but it's just psychologically helpful to have it stored away.
1: Yeah, I want to talk about money, but we'll maybe get I to love that later. About money, maybe we'll get to that later. Um, <laughs> yeah, I need
2: I need to have a lot of money saved in order to feel safe, and I just know that about myself. So that was a good thing about working at Adobe. Have you asked the question yet? That you said?
1: <laughs> yes, I'll say yes. I'll say yes so we can move past I don't it.
2: Believe you? Okay.
1: So uh, eventually, you know, Ira was right and, you know, eventually you do end up working with This American Life and you did the series for This American Life called Videos for You where you help people with a confession that they wanted to tell someone, but they didn't know how.
2: It's basically the exact same premise of Heavyweight.
1: Yeah, I know. When I was getting prepping for this, I was like, wait, wh- what?
2: <laughs> it's literally I pitched Heavyweight, except I'm not Jonathan Goldstein. I'm not as funny as him.
1: Well, now we know how Jonathan Goldstein came up with the premise for Heavyweight, but how did you come up (laughs) with the premise for videos for you?
2: I think I liked things that were made for an audience of one. I think I'd been interested in some theater that did that. And um, I was looking for like a conceptual framework for a film series that I could pitch. And I thought, wouldn't it be great? Or, you know, just thinking about radio, too, how it's usually like, now we're going to talk about something that happened, but I wanted something a little more personal Like that. And so I was like, what if we made a video or a radio story that was made for one person? And that would just add like inherent stakes and drama.
1: So you pitch it to this make a life.
2: I ran into Ira in the lobby, sorry, in the intermission of a dance performance. And I was like, hey, remember me? We talked on the phone. And then I just started like pitching him. (laughs) Such a hustler. (laughs) Something I would not have uh, the chutzpah to do now. Why not? you know that like fiery ambition of being really young and in your early 20s where you're like kind of unashamed and you're like, oh, like there's a whole world out there and I got to break into it, you know, Um, that I don't have anymore, I guess, to the same degree. It's not like a physical burning like it was then. And it was strange because I had just been like writing in my journal like ideas i would want to pitch to this american life and then and then he just like literally like appeared like manifested like in a dream or something and so it just felt like the universe was telling me also you have to do this
1: was he aiming for it to be an audio series and you kind of had to convince him it was video or he kind of gave you a lot of latitude
2: i pitched it as video and we did it as video and then the third piece we ended up deciding should be a radio story but the original vision had been for them all to be video
1: I want to talk about the second piece. And the second piece is about a woman who has tattoos, but whenever she's around her parents who are Christian, she wears long sleeves and pants to cover up her tattoos. And she, at this point, was she had like 13 or something um, all over her body. And some of them are small, some of them are pretty big. Um, she even had one tattoo that spelled out the words mom and dad. And she just felt like I cannot tell my parents about this; they're going to freak out. So, at one point in the story, you make a video that she's supposed to present to her parents that reveals this hidden secret that she has. But then she travels to where her parents are, and then she backs out. And as someone who's working on the story, like, what, what was that moment like?
2: Um, really sad. Yeah because I had a lot invested in it, but I didn't want to force her to do something she didn't want to do. And that was like the predecessor for ending the series, because it was just too messy. It takes a lot of money to make a video and a lot of time and effort. And then the fact that you have to make half of it, and then the whole second half, you don't know what's going to happen until you've already put a bunch of time, money and effort into the first half. was just like, not a sustainable process. And so that whole thing was just so exhausting. And People are people like they ghost you. They like drop off the map. They change their mind about wanting to do stories. They freak out like, you know, who knows? Stuff changes and happens and it takes a really long time to make video too. So I was just it was very stressful.
1: With videos for you, I feel like you stumbled on a really good idea, one that's like repeatable. And I feel like once you come up with a really good repeatable idea, to me, it feels like a license to print gold. You know, I feel like Song Exploder is an example of that um and videos for you similarly is an example of that in my opinion so like why did didn't you want to keep up with it
2: it was a shame i got sick of my own idea <laughs> i just got sick of it it was really emotionally intense like i was really like deeply involved in in some people's like most raw and painful thing in their life um or that just like that unspoken thing And yeah, like all the practical production things of like just the terror that we would spend so much time producing the first half of the thing. And then when we played it for the person, like Heavyweight doesn't fully produce a thing, a product for the person to listen to or hear. It's just like getting people in the room to talk about it for the first time ever. So they can do that and then kill it if it doesn't work out without having put too much work into it. So that was probably a little bit smarter. We were really exhausted by the end of it, and it felt kind of unsustainable. And um, I mean, I was also just like, I was just like too young and scared. (laughs) It was exhausting.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that sounds really hard and difficult. But I also even know the start of the series was very hard, like trying to find people that had something significant that they wanted to tell someone that they haven't told before. I remember you, I think you told me you walked around Brooklyn and you like stapled signs on
2: that's a better story. I hired a professional poster putter upper <laughs> in New York, which was like this underground guy. So it's illegal to put up posters in New York, which is why it, they didn't say this American life on them. And they often get taken down. And I mean, it's legal to put them up like in certain areas. So, but this is this guy, he had become famous for putting up a sign that said, I'm looking for a girlfriend. And I was thinking about how hard it is to put up posters in New York. And so I called the number from the trying to get a girlfriend (laughs) sign, And he was like a totally weird guy. And I was – I think I paid him like $100 or something. And I was like, can I pay you to put up these posters? Because he had this whole strategy to not get caught where he was like (laughs) – he would like – built, I think he built like a pocket in his jacket or something. He would like pulled them out really fast and had some like technique that I recognized was a skill. He, his time was amazing. Like the amount, the numbers he was able to get up in a short period of time was like incredible. And so I paid him in a couple different rounds to put up these posters. It was so sketchy and nothing came of those. Everyone who responded was like, like mentally ill, like on the streets, like just like crazy, crazy, crazy responses it was like sad and like this was not going to lead to a story um so that part was a failure but it wasn't hard to find the stories because this american life has such a like great social media following of people who understand the show i put a thing on social media a bunch of people emailed me it was a few days of like going through the responses and it was like one meeting with ira or something being like here's the top five and then we just
1: zeroed in on those three stories so then why did you feel the need to put to hire someone who puts up posters?
2: Well, this was before or around the same time. I don't know. I think I was curious. I wanted more diverse group of people than just fans, and I thought I might get something interesting off the street. <laughs> and I like the idea. I don't know. There was like certain whimsy to it of... Um, of just, you know, we wanted it to feel like democratic, like this is a service, like this is an art service I'm giving people, I'm going, I think I wanted to feel more useful, now I'm remembering, I wanted my work to feel more practical and useful, and I was like this could actually, this is a gift, this is an art gift, I want to give someone, it could happen to anyone who needs it, who has a really good story with lots of stakes and whatever, <laughs> and if, and it could be anyone on the street in New York City, and if they just see my poster, or like maybe people will post it on social media or whatever, um, But, yeah, the fact that I had to stay anonymous in the poster because it's illegal for New York City rules, I don't quite remember. Then it made, it made the poster not that exciting. I'm glad you reminded me because I want to do a story about
1: the poster, put her up her. Yeah, you were talking about him. It was just like character, <laughs> character, character, character. Total character. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so... The other reason why I want to talk about Scared is Scared is because um I kinda have to confess something awful to you. Okay. Um, okay, so when I first saw the Scared Is Scared, um, which is my introduction to your work, I was like, Okay, this is really special and really cute and it was super it is super moving. But at the same time I just personally have this attitude, like when any work features kids, that I feel like it's a little bit of a cop out where it's like, of course this is gonna be cute and adorable and, and amazing and go viral and um I don't know to me it feels like wearing a leather jacket like when I see someone wearing a leather jacket I'm like they're sexy or they're cool or they're hot but it also seems like such an easy access to like looking good and and of course that of the video that you made took a lot of work and there's a lot of production and there's your voice in it and it's super unique like but that's like a feeling that I have intrinsically when I see work that involves kids.
2: I mean, I would agree with you if I felt like it was overdone or just like, you know, becoming a gimmick, but I don't think it's overdone at all. Like, I'm shocked how underdone it is given how good interviews with kids are. So if ki- interviews with kids are happening all the time and I'm seeing it pop up everywhere in movies and on the radio and on NPR and in WNYC and they're like, we got to call a kid for this story. And I'd be like, I roll like I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something else like this is being covered. But no one talks to kids like. Or not that often. Like, it's pretty rare. Like, there have been some This American Life episodes, but, you know, 25% of America is under 18. They're a huge part of our population, and I think they're very underrepresented. So I don't have any problem talking to kids just because it's low-hanging fruit. I think it's low-hanging fruit that no one's picking, and I will continue to pick it until it's all gone.
1: <laughs> and you're 100% right. Like, you're factually correct and even so recently, you did a story for The Daily and it involved a kid and it was delightful. I love that episode. It really hit a nerve with the listeners of The Daily. Here was this kid who came into the New York Times offices, who, who was very curious about impeachment and all, all these questions. And you and The Times paired him up with like the leading reporter on impeachment. And you, he just like got to ask us questions. It was very simple, but yet such brilliant radio. So I agree with you.
2: So you liked that episode?
1: I love that episode. And I love the scared is scared. I just have something in me intrinsically that's just like, I don't own a leather jacket and I don't wear a leather jacket. And clearly this whole thing is more about me than you, but.
2: I wish there was as many kids episodes as there were leather jackets in the world. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. And it's like something we've discussed where it's like, we're not going to put a kid on the daily every single day. Otherwise, you'd be like over it. The joy is the surprise of getting to hear from a kid when you're not expecting it.
1: Yeah, and the kid that you've had from that episode is very special. Like, who is this person? Like, (laughs) like, who are his parents? Like, how were you interested in impeachment when you were, like, 10 years old or whatever? How old was he?
2: Eight. It was funny because the parents didn't know either. They're like, they're not that interested in it. They're like, now we have to learn about impeachment because our kid's asking all these questions. But yeah, I think it was the word whistleblower that sucked him in. Was that your question? That was it. <laughs> that was totally fine. That was a good question.
0: Okay, I'm just going to pause the show real quick to tell you about how you could support the show and keep this whole operation running. If you can, please go to our Patreon and donate. Five bucks a month would go a long way to sustaining tape. And in return, we have some goodies. We have transcripts. We have a newsletter that we'll be sending out and best of all, I think, is extra bonus audio of questions and answers that we'd have room for in the proper show. So um, head over to Patreon if you enjoy tape and are able to donate and want to keep the show alive. Thank you. Now back to me talking to Bianca.
1: One of your more recent pieces is about a poet named Franz Wright, and um you mentioned the fact that you discovered this poet is because you had a friend whose former poetry teacher was Franz, and he got in touch with you, your friend, to say, oh my God, this person is really interesting. You should make a documentary about him. Does that kind of thing happen to you often?
2: Um, no, not that often. I wish it would happen more. It was funny. It was actually my freshman year roommate's older brother <laughs> like knew I made documentary stuff. And he... He was like helping clean out the house and the house was really crazy. There was poetry written on the walls, on the fridge, on the coffee filters, on like napkins, like literally every inch of the apartment, every scrap of blank space. And it just looked amazing. And so my friend was like, I don't know what this is. It was all the way in Waltham, Massachusetts, outside of Boston. He was like, next time I go up there, I think you should just come with me. Just check it out. It it looks insane. Um, And it was only on that exploratory mission that I think a lot of people would be like, that's not a story. (laughs) Like, I'm not going to check that out. That's just like a weirdo who died. But I was like, yeah, okay." (laughs) And it was when I was there that I discovered the tapes. Franz's wife told me these tapes existed.
1: and The tapes being uh, like audio diaries that the poet recorded for two years. And there's 546 of them.
2: Yeah, there's 546 files and basically his – as he was going through chemo, he was really weak. He lost the fat in his wrists. He was having major wrist pain and he couldn't write anymore and so he was forced to start recording his writing process and so he had the recorder because he was recording his poems and his drafts and then he would have his wife type them up later um, because his wrists were so painful. But he didn't really know how to use technology. And so the recorder was going all the time. It would record his middle-of-the-night musings. It recorded some fights with his wife, um, some beautiful moments, you know, bits of unpublished poetry. Often you didn't know what was a poem or what was just him talking.
1: And fights with his cat, too.
2: Fights with his cat, screaming at his cat, going to the bathroom, talking to me at times or a character who seemed like me or, you know, the future listener of the tapes. It was just like a total goldmine. And it's just it's such a joy to be working with. I say I was working with him, even though he was dead by the time I discovered him. But um, to be working with a writer and a poet, his words were so delicious. And even though he was in this confined space, like all of the recordings happened in this one little room. He was traveling through space and time and into all these different worlds. And it was like a treasure hunt. You just never knew what you were going to get in the next tape.
1: And you felt compelled to make it a documentary feature length film. Yeah. You know, I, I understand where you're coming from in terms of like wanting this to be a feature length film, but also the moment you discover found sound, and that there's secret recordings. That's like a gold mine for like any radio story.
2: Yeah, it was so much audio of him that I would have had to fill with visuals unless I just left it blank. And then I would have had to like film myself, which I didn't, which is just annoying because then I start to think about how I look and then it's just all downhill. <laughs> then you're another year behind schedule.
1: <laughs> and where did that compulsion come from? You know, I feel like I've heard you talk about like you felt like this is what you needed to do in the next step for your career. It's so, like make something bigger.
2: Yeah, I wanted to make a feature-length film, and this was a story and an and an archive that felt worthy of that. In the end, it took two years to make the radio story, and it would have taken like five years and money to make a film, and it just didn't feel worth the effort. Like, what am I adding by making it a film? And what does the story want to be? And I thought the story was working beautifully as radio. And the only reason to make it a film was that it would be more glorious for me.
1: Say more about that.
2: When you make a feature-length film, it goes to festivals and people ask you questions and they're proud of you just that you finished a feature-length film because it's really hard. And more people would have seen it. And when they experienced it, I would get to be there with them sometimes and like see their reactions. It would have been more satisfying. And they would be watching it in a theater in a dark room with the door closed with their phones off versus god knows where like i'm sure still a lot of people did experience it and it touched them but you're not you're not with them when they're hearing it and so you're just getting emails from them i will make a feature film before i die so now that's on tape
1: documentary or fiction probably some sort of hybrid why why that goal
2: it just feels like an epic accomplishment that I would like to achieve. It's so hard to make a film, but once you've done it, you're really immersing someone in your world. And I think it would feel
1: really good. So the piece, two years with Franz is in addition to being a profile of a poet and you returning to your roots of, of making straight up profiles, (laughs) um, it's also you seeking advice of
2: i think it's advice on how to be an artist and how to have a relationship a great love and make great work um which is what i feel like he achieved um not too much recognition
1: <laughs> despite winning a pulitzer
2: yes and not too much happiness and not too much money so it was just sort of reconciling those things as a young person like what do i want and what will I get? And seeing someone who was so successful and yet died with like barely any money and so much pain in his life it was just like, shit, do I really want this? Like, is this really, like, what am I signing up for here? You know, it's already been a pretty rough ride. And I'm only 20, however old I was when I started. I think I started when I was like 26, actually.
1: And so in the write-up for the piece that accompanied the piece for Transom, you wrote, like, when I was seven, I asked strangers, what's the best advice I've ever heard? And I recorded their advice in a line, notebook. And I feel like, in a way, that's still what you're doing to this day.
2: I know. Isn't it amazing? We're just, like, who we are completely as little children. Um, I still have the notebook. I still have that entire list of everyone I talk to, like, people working at gas stations, people working in fast food places, like a caterer at my aunt's wedding, uh, a basketball player on the local college basketball team. Like I really (laughs) asked everyone. It was just a way to get to talk to people.
1: This is also something that you said in the Transform article that accompanied the radio story. You write, at one point, while I was working on this piece, Jay said, good writing is just saying facts. And for you, that was a very incredible epiphany Can you elaborate on that?
2: (laughs) I think about that almost every day. Um,
1: It's really good advice.
2: Oh, my God. It's so good. Yeah, I think when you're young, you're, like, trying to, like, tie it all together, like, say the big idea or, like, encompass everything and, like, just, like, trying to do that. And you're, like, it's a much humbler, sort of simpler way of approaching it. Like, a lot of good writing is facts. Not all of it, but like 90% of it is just like, here's what it looked like. Here's what happened. Here's the way the light was when they said that. And so I was like, okay, I can just zoom my little lens on facts from my experience while I was talking to this person. And the tape was so good. The tape was doing the rest of it and people were making those connections themselves.
1: Can you think of a sentence that you're writing That Jay would cut out like what's an example of a sentence that you wrote with all this insight that Jay would say no to and then give me an example of a straightforward fact-based sentence.
2: I don't know. It's just like sort of big kind of complicated ideas. (laughs) I can't remember what ended up in the piece or not. I wish I had a specific example for you. I mean, I could look try to look back in old scripts if you want right now. Yeah. Okay. Okay, let's just start opening random scripts. So the piece, let's look at April 22nd. I thought perhaps the idea of my presence as a listener eased the loneliness of his days, or maybe his eased the loneliness of mine. It was just like me talking about my feelings. (laughs) That I think got cut. Here's like the similarities of me and Beth. We both felt like the tapes had spoken to us. Oh, for the first time, I thought the tapes, I thought of the tapes as their own artwork, like an endless waterfall that you could dip your hand into. (laughs) This is embarrassing.
1: (laughs) So that got cut. Yes. In my head, I was like, maybe it got cut and got replaced by this.
2: No, it was more like keeping the factual parts of a certain scene, but then cutting all my like feelings about it. was like this happened then I it made me feel this and it was like no made you feel this just say the facts and we'll like get how it made you feel like through your tone through the facts that you're choosing that sort of thing and so even like the breakup scene where the unnamed boyfriend (laughs) uh, is packing up his car you know driving away moving to another state like none, nothing in that breakup scene is how I was feeling or how he was feeling. It was all just like fact by fact of of what what happened, what our breakup looked like, like what items he was taking from our room and him like pulling those books out from the shelf. What do I? Oh, I want to find the book line actually. Cherry picking my books off the shelf. Yeah,
1: and talk talk a little bit about this like drive to make work without a specific outlet in mind without like someone accepting a pitch like that's so much of the radio world like oh pitch didn't get accepted I'm gonna move on and pitch something that will get accepted that will have funding and I understand the reason for that but talk about being a person who's maybe more driven by the idea of something than whether it's monetizable or has a home
2: my favorite radio stories are ones that were passion projects to begin with that would be unpitchable from the start because the idea sounds so mundane. Like I love mundane radio stories where like something happens. And I think Jay has always been an advocate for like not being afraid to have your own darlings, your little stories that you can't pitch to someone, but that you're really interested in or don't be afraid to gather tape, not knowing what it's for. Um, It's an incredibly inefficient process, but it can be very beautiful. And I think I just early on with The Scared is Scared and Holy Cow, Lisa, those two videos, those were ideas that would be like incredibly unpitchable. Boy talks about anxiety as I feel anxiety <laughs> would have been the logline for Scared is Scared. Holy Cow, Lisa would have been like, I want to make a movie about my heartbreak like every other fucking person on planet Earth. Like there's like like literally I'm just going to go talk to someone else who's also been heartbroken. Right terrible pitch but the person i was talking to happened to be a great talker an amazing character um and we had a really great connection a beautiful connection that i think people were able to hear in the tape um so i've never really been afraid of the unpitchable story and it's actually kind of like the type of story
1: that intrigues me the most okay so let's talk about money you know, you grew up in Seattle. It seems like you're from like like <laughs> like a well-off family. and but it seems like you're kind of you're living on your own and you're kind of sustaining yourself on your own and all of that.
2: I mean, my dad was an engineer, and you know, he very diligently saved for me to go to whatever college I wanted to go to uh, without having any debt, which I'm really grateful for. But he made it very clear, like when you graduate you are on your own, <laughs> you know, like I've saved for your college. I've done my thing. And that's the end. And you have to completely fend for yourself and you need to get a job. And da, da. And I knew I wanted to move to New York and I knew it would be really expensive. Um, I was a very frugal child <laughs> and I was too frugal in college. And it actually ended up backfiring on my dad because he's like very annoyed how frugal I am. Yeah, I've always been very like money conscious. And, and so, yeah, I've been able to support myself as a freelancer.
1: You have like some anxiety around money? Yes. Where does that come from?
2: From wanting to have creative freedom. I always want to be able to like have experiences. I always want to have the freedom to be able to do that. If an opportunity comes up, I don't want to be like restrained because of my financial situation. Um, So I'm always trying to like save now to have freedom in the future. And I also want to have creative freedom. If there's a project that I want to work on, for three months straight, I want to like have the savings to do that. And I'm lucky that I've been able to save up for that through having that job at Adobe and directing commercials.
1: So then that's how it is. Like that's how you're able to make a piece that took two years out of your life to make.
2: Yeah, I should crunch the numbers, but I'd say I make like 70% of my income from like commercial stuff and 30 from like freelance journalism stuff. It's nice because I'm never like trying to make my living from like writing magazine features or anything like i can just do that and i don't have to like try to negotiate like a hundred dollars more or whatever on that thing so i can sort of pick my battles
1: so you're coming out with a new podcast what's the premise of the show
2: so the logline is a podcast about art god and loneliness it's my own weirdo personal art project that i was just doing for fun and trying to be like really like a place to experiment with the form and just do more stories that are like three to four minutes too. Cause I really enjoy that form that are just like silly and pointless. <laughs> so there's a story about like, I went to this ramen restaurant, there was nine rolls of toilet paper on the wall next to the toilet. And I was like, why are there nine rolls of toilet paper here? And I just like, it's a pointless mystery that I try to figure out. And I end up like talking through a translator to the guy who started these ramen restaurants, which are like big in Japan There's my friend just talking for three minutes about this spool of thread she saw every day in her childhood. That's an unpitchable story, you know, but it's beautiful. Like, I just love the way she speaks. She's such an observant person and she has such an eye for detail, and her use of language always surprises me. And she always uses like words that I wouldn't really expect. And she's just someone I want to hear on tape. And this was like a story about some string. Um, But they all do get at that theme of like a search for meaning, basically. Through strangers, like trying to connect with strangers out there in the world. Um, And like being a freelancer, it's a lonely disposition and only having my microphone as a tool to make connections and to
1: meet people. I heard a draft of the first episode, and it's about a woman who's a crossing guard who is lonely. Say more about it.
2: So the first story is about a school crossing guard who I followed for six months and she let me put a wire on her while she was crossing people. But the format of that story, the way it came about was inspired by a piece of performance art by this artist, Sophie Cal. It's a piece where she picks a stranger and follows them. She ends up following a guy all the way on a flight to Vienna or something like that um, from Paris. And so I just love that idea. Like, What if you just picked a complete random stranger and followed them? And that's what I love about Pike Malinovsky's work is that it's conceptual and it's poetic and it's taking like a beautiful idea and trying to manifest it in a radio story. And so I was like, where can I get strangers to talk to me? I know where churches. <laughs> I was also looking for someone who was lonely and willing to talk openly about loneliness, who wasn't in a relationship, who lived alone in New York City, because um, I know there's so many people like that another one of my favorite magazine stories by N.R. Kleinfield, The Lonely Death of George Bell in the Times Magazine. Beautiful piece about like when someone dies alone in their apartment, what happens after. But I wanted to get to that person a little bit before they died. And we talk about her death together. Strangers, if you find the right one, are like really willing to go deep, love having attention put on them and feel really seen.
1: Okay, so... um Like my non-radio friends are amazed by my drive to make work and I personally don't think it's all that special and sometimes I even have the opposite feeling where I'm like, I don't think I'm getting enough done Mm -hmm. and you to me are definitely someone with a lot of drive and I'm curious, like what drives you?
2: I think my mom has a really strong hustle. I don't know, maybe a hustle is genetic. Um, I don't know, but I think like the deepest – answer that feels the best is just wanting to make your little mark of adding beauty to the world while you're here i also think i'll feel more ready to die if i know i've made something while i was here that will outlive me and now with climate change that's all being put into perspective but i guess one reason i make stuff is so that i can die
1: bianca gaver well thank you
0: Coming on to tape. Thanks, Mooch! That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much to Bianca Gaver for coming on tape to talk to me. And don't forget, her new show is called Constellation Prize. Go check it out wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Mooch Sadie. My co host is Mickey Capper. And this episode was edited by Angela Bang. If you like the show and you want to keep it going, please support us on Patreon. We're at patreon.com/tape radio. You could find us at tape radio.org, and we're also on Twitter at tape radio. Thank you so much for listening.